Welcome to Policy Beyond Politics, the weekly show which discusses public policy issues and concerns. This is a very rational, nuanced, apolitical discussion which is totally different from our prime time TV debates. Today I am joined by Dr. Vijay Shakuja, the leading expert in international relations and today we are going to discuss the recent statement by State Secretary Mike Pompeo on the Chinese incursions and also the US grand strategy in the Indo-Pacific region. Welcome to the show uh, Dr. Vijay Shakuja, uh, the distinguished fellow of Center for Public Policy Research. Today we are going to discuss uh, the statement uh, uh, by Mr. Mike Pompeo, the State Secretary of the United States. He, uh, in his uh, interaction with the uh, American Enterprise uh, podcast, uh, he said uh, when the question was asked about India-China border dispute and uh, the territorial uh, issues, he said these are the actions by the authoritarian regimes and we've been seeing from China for the last uh, so many years. Now, in that context, my you know uh, this conversation we are trying to build today is about America's grand strategy in the Indo-Pacific or in the Asia Pacific in this region. With a statement from the Mike Pompeo, the Secretary of State on Chinese Communist Party, actually he was referring not China. He was he kept on mentioning Chinese uh, Communist Party, uh, Communist Party of China, and I think this is a reiteration from the State Department on the U.S. interest in Asia and Pacific. So, sir, could you, could you elaborate on the strategic thinking of the U.S. Defense Department in this region, the context of the statement and also some of the recent developments, some of the recent policy uh, initiatives taken by the Defense Department of the United States of America? Thank you for inviting me to this conversation. I think uh, uh, we are in very midst of very interesting times, uh, rather I must say, uh, very turbulent times as far the seas and oceans are concerned. Although by all measures, we would find that uh, post uh, in the Corona period, not much of activity which is taking place on the oceans, but Pacific waters have been quite turbulent. And we've seen an enormous amount of military activity uh, concerning uh, the United States as part of their broader interest in the Pacific Ocean. And of course, this is also being uh, you know, equaled in those many terms by the Chinese who are also proactively engaged in uh, in South China Sea or East China Sea in waters in the Pacific Ocean and trying to not match but at the same time confront the Americans in their own simple ways etc etc but at the heart of all this lies is a US's greater interest in the Pacific which is which I notice a very distinct trend the 2017 Indo-Pacific strategy which was brought out was very clear it had a very broad sense of what the Indo-Pacific meant. That means for them in a very, very um, interesting way and a very uh, pleasant and uh, uh, way they would call it Hollywood to Bollywood, which took fancy, uh, you know, um, with, by many uh, scholars, uh, partly in the context of uh, uh, Indian uh, for strategic thinkers who said this is a large space and we are, but there were also some inhibitions about the geographic or cartographic imagination of the uh, United States uh, Indo-Pacific strategy. For them, 
uh, it was for east of Africa, for Indians, particularly east of Africa, going all the way to the Pacific and they say Pacific Island nations, because India has interest in the Pacific Island Nation Forum. Besides, uh, you know, notwithstanding the so-called the, uh, the stitching of geographies of the two uh, strategy, uh, of the strategic thinking amongst the United States and those in India, but this was a large space. And we all began, the discourse, as a matter of fact, has its genesis going back 2012, 2013, when the whole idea came about from uh, the Australians who said two, Pacific, two ocean strategy, and they called the Indo-Pacific, it made a lot of sense. At the same time, we were also given a very nice flavor of confluence of the seas from the Japanese. So there was a resonance of sorts to suggest that Indo-Pacific is the geographic space that we were talking about. But if one looks at it, Genesis had a very strong strategic element, and thereafter a large number of stakeholders who came in to, to understand the Indo-Pacific, and then began as essentially a concept called Indo-Pacific, purely in terms of fisheries or migratory fish. It turned into a strategic space that people talked about, oh, can we have Indo-Pacific cultural exchanges? Today we are talking about Indo-Pacific um, concept uh, in the context of COVID response pandemic response. So it has taken a very wide definition. Suffice to say, Indo-Pacific remains and the flavor of the time is on strategic element and that's what I'm going to focus on. And since 2013-14, uh, we were first introduced by the United States, um, what they called as Indo-Asia-Pacific. They didn't want to leave the concept called Indo-Pacific, Asia-Pacific. And if you see the bill that was uh, that was put, uh, that was introduced in the uh, in the Congress, U.S. Congress, it the bill was labeled as Asia Pacific, uh, Indo Asia Pacific. Mm -hmm. Thereafter, it got mutated to read as Indo Pacific, which became because that was the prevalent terminology, and the Indo Pacific strategy came about. Mm -hmm. And Indo Pacific strategy was, if one read it very carefully, it had a geographic space, what we called as Hollywood to Bollywood. Uh, or rather, uh, Hollywood to Bollywood, but it had a very interesting tone of strategic element. And for uh, over there, there are lots of issues. The menu was rich in terms of, and within this broader Indo-Pacific, we also came across something called as quadrilateral security dialogue. I would term QSD as QSD 2.0 because the first QSD had already started way back 2007 when the second series of Malabar exercises were held in 2007 within that year and there were four navies plus Singapore who joined in. And then again 2007 when you go back again trying to look at QSD, again it was Philippines that time the APEC meeting was on when this whole concept was again reintroduced. So I would call it QSD 2.0. So there's a certain element of continuity which is gone. The concept has been there. It has gone down for a while for various reasons. Australians saying we don't want to be part of it because they were pressures from China. Japan had its own reasons. India was not very sure whether they want to push a, a narrative which would be titled, uh, which will be focused on China. So each one had it, but today the focus is very much on the, uh, on China. And thereafter, when you look at focus on China, the strategic geography of the United States military, for that matter, or United States, is the Pacific. I would call this space as uh, a Western Pacific Ocean or the Western Pacific Rim. Now, within this Western Pacific Rim, you would find that much of the strategy documents are focused. A number of issues which are coming up here, a number of issues which are coming up here, they range from conceptualizing the idea, 
bringing out new terminologies. So today, you know, what would what we'd call as what would be in ASEAN terms alphabet soup. But here we are talking about is not alphabets. It is solid words which are making up concepts like Pacific Deterrence Initiative, distributed maritime operations, the strategy towards we're talking about uh, something called as uh, uh, U.S. Maritime Superiority 2.0. It is not in terms of alphabet soup because they would that was the flavor of time. Here we got solid conceptualization with the U.S. thinking. The U.S. believes that the center of gravity of their engagement will be the Pacific Ocean. They, of course, in the, uh, they have taken the initiative of renaming the PECOM or the, uh, in Hawaii to read as Indo-PECOM for that matter. They do take note of that this is a large space. By all, by all counts today, when I look at it, I think the focus is on the Western Pacific Ocean. Now, within this broader Western Pacific Ocean, you, you find that there are a number of uh, issues which are coming up. Concepts like uh, Hawaii, Guam, and then Haina. If you follow an axis and Okinawa or no, you find that the, the Americans are now pushing on both hardware in terms of infrastructure, in terms of materials, in terms of platforms, as also in terms of conduct of operations. They've had a number of engagements in, in terms of or show of force, what they call as elephant walk Guam, deployment of bombers from Alaska. Right, putting out a large number of aircraft to run through the region, and this has become a feature. I think last month, in one week, we've had about seven to eight instances that the U.S. aircraft have individually, collectively, in terms of groups of four to five or different varieties, including bombers, have been floating around. For the U.S., they find that it is just not just the major platform that they want to build their whole force structure on. They have concepts called as bringing in unmanned aviation, unmanned surface vessels. And they've been trying out these. So you, one sees a kind of a focus of the United States military running towards the Pacific Ocean. Indo-Pacific, Indo-Pacific is important, yes. But within the Indo-Pacific, what would be useful for the United States right now is looking at focus is on the Pacific. This is how the entire scenario is building up. I, 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 maybe let me share with you some um, uh, statistics uh, in this regard. Uh, today, the U.S. Navy uh, has a total of about 297 vessels. That is financial year 2020. They're looking to build to go up to 314 vessels to 355 vessels by 2034. Now, if one were to look at these figures and pit these against the, the Chinese, who have a large number, they, may, they, are not dwarfing, they are not dwarfed by the Chinese numbers. But in the long run, one finds that there is a certain amount of lead or the Chinese, or the Chinese Navy may have taken a, a little edge purely in terms of numbers. The quality remains an issue which needs to be debated. And if one, a quick read of the numbers in the case of the Chinese would be that in the last five years, say 2014 to 2019, they added 52 vessels. Mm -hmm. And they are currently at about 360 vessels, projected to grow to 400 watches by 2025 and 420, 30, 400 by 2030. Right. Now, this will be, if one looks at it, uh, say 2035, 30, uh, the 
Chinese Navy would have anything about 50 vessels more than that. But what we find is that the US is also investing a lot in technological developments. I would put my neck out and suggest that the US still enjoys a very strong technological uh, edge over the Chinese Navy. They've been investing in large number of technologies. It is not surprising to see DARPA, some of the one of the leading organizations which is into research and development, is producing one of the top of the line projects. A variety of hardware is coming out. And this brings in the concept of distributed maritime operations in the context of the United States. So US strategy, war fighting strategy, would need to be watched very carefully. What, what does it mean? Where does it fit in? In terms of pitted against the Chinese, one thing for sure is that unlike the Chinese, you has United States military or US Navy has a rich experience in having gone into combat, conducted operations, whether it be the Gulf, I think they've done a great job over there. All right. They've been all over. And it is not surprising that they now fielded after three years, three carriers in the Pacific. And adding icing on the on the cake was that they even carried out two carrier operations that is joint that is the kind of pressure which is coming in in terms of u.s strategy military hardware thinking and the focus so what about the uh, pdis and pacific defense initiative taken by the state department uh, yeah pdi is a pacific deterrence initiative is essentially They've drawn, um, as a matter of fact, a leaf out of what they had for the European Defense Initiative that was targeted against the against Russia, that was focused in Europe, mm -hmm. and they for Pacific they've got the Pacific Deterrence Initiative. Now under this, there is a number of uh, you know subsets within this initiative: infrastructure development, reinforcing, let's say, um, uh, high altitude area defense for say, Guam. Now, Guam is most vulnerable in the U.S. thing. Uh, it is very much within the range of uh, what the Americans call as Guam killers, DF-21. They were the carrier killers. And they were very much in that range. So the focus is now to create a kind of defense of Guam, as also defense of Hawaii, as also bring in, uh, in terms of resources, you would have noticed the U.S. yesterday, uh, President Trump also signed the order of removing about 9,000 troops from Europe. And they want to bring in those troops, not for anything, because they want to bring it into this theater, because that is where the focus is. So Pacific Deter uh, Deterrence Initiative would encompass things like movement of uh, human resource, building of infrastructure, and a strategy to support that. And above all, where are the finances? After they will require money. So they have listed out a certain amount of uh, money for this purpose. And the uh, a parallel, uh, image, uh, parallel image would be what the um, uh, what has come from the uh, Senate How, uh, committee is what they call as Indo-Pacific Reassurance Initiative. It is a parallel one. But then the aim of both, the Congress is supporting it, bipartisan, everybody's on board, the target is China. So we're going to see over the next three to four or five years, we're going to see a large amount of investment coming in. So under the PDI, you'll have lots of things which are happening, probably we'll have to monitor each one of them, etc. as to what exactly, how does um, PDI, what is the architecture? How does it shape up? 
where is it heading so it will be a subject of great interest to the militaries of other pattern nations in the pacific particularly in the pacific as as also uh, for india because of the broader idea we are not dismissing indo pacific so indians will also need to have a look at what the pacific defense deterrence initiative is all about so uh, sir when we discuss uh, china i think uh, we can't conclude any discussion without uh, figuring out uh, figuring uh, uh, taiwan and japan in the old configuration so what is us uh, approach to taiwan and japan in this all set of new configuration or reconfiguration they are planning in this region See, Taiwan has always been a contentious little issue for the uh, between China and the uh, and the United States. Uh, so 1976 Taiwan Relations Act is actually the the so-called the uh, foundation on which the relationship, uh, which uh, which encourages United States to provide uh, military hardware, you know, to build up certain capacities to defeat any threat coming from mainland China. This has been the so-called the pillar of their relationship. but in recent times i notice a certain trend that uh, us would like to reinforce the capacities and capabilities of taiwan through defense i mean they've got a, a package which is already on in terms of providing the military hardware but recently they are more than happy to supply them a, a quick supply for defense purposes what we're going to see is taiwan will become very very central uh, uh, between us and uh, china chinese the primary aim they want to get the mainland back one nation historical a number of issues within within that framework let's not get into those what we find that taiwan is central and here united states would use it for the purpose of its own strategic you know uh, let's say uh, uh, advantage and here would taiwan be a guinea pig no not really i think it's a win win for taiwan for united states and of course they will remain pitted against so taiwan will remain central as a kind of one would be surprised if one looks at hawaii guam taiwan but taiwan is so close to mainland china it is part of that first island chain and the americans would not like to go into the first island chain because they must deal at the second island chain what about the chinese strategy and they would like to reinforce now they will always be troubling mainland china through small these small, small little activities sending the aircraft which come takes off from okinawa goes over the uh, over taiwan's uh, you know over taiwan airspace and lands up in thailand somewhere else. or the ships go close through taiwan straits or they come to east of taiwan uh, to the east of taiwan straits and carry out exercises the tankers are there the bombers are there the fighters are there and taiwan uh, would would the united states use it as a as a, a kind of a forward base well it is vulnerable they know the vulnerabilities in terms of uh, taiwan in terms of of being swarmed by a large number of m9s 11s and there are a series of these missiles which are deployed along the coastline which fall within the range of uh, you know, and uh, within their range is taiwan so they would not be very keen or enthusiastic enough to put lots of defenses in it but do everything possible to provide for to help taiwan defend against a chinese invasion which will not be easy to defend one one must assume that very carefully because uh, the numbers are not pitted in favor of taiwan they'll be swarmed and the kind of platforms that the chinese navy is building 
particularly in the context of landing to the large 071 variety of vessels is phenomenal. That is high priority for them to put ships. So, and uh, Japan, sorry, I missed out Japan. Now, Japan is a very, very interesting player. Um, yesterday, um, I think we got a very interesting news coming out of um, Korea too, that the, uh, very much, they are very much engaged with the United States. There's nothing called a drawdown of forces. Japan is very much part of it, despite the domestic anger over all those issues which happen over there. And Japan itself is finding itself, um, it has got a technological edge, but it doesn't have a quantitative edge. Would, China, would Japan join in with the United States? Again, it will be part of, to my mind, would be a part of the broader part of the uh, QSD, quadrilateral security dialogue, in which these members would come in. I would also uh, suggest in uh, looking at the trends that are there that the focus of the quadrilateral security dialogue members would shift towards the Pacific. Australians would come in. They have just announced a, a larger share for the defense budget that is just uh, uh, two days ago. So you find that the, um, at least three members of the Quad are primed to work together with the United States, and they may narrow the geography of their operations in terms of training exercises, conduct coverage, or for the, for the purpose of signaling will be the Pacific Ocean. In this context, would India fit in? Yes, it does make sense after some very unpleasant experience with the Chinese uh, on the Himalayan border. There is every reason for the Indian Navy to think about a more aggressive posturing in the South China Sea. It is, uh, if one goes into the strategy document, the South China Sea region is the secondary area of interest. Probably they'll have to rework on it to read as primary area of interest because of this incident which are happening. And in the times to come, in the months to come, we should anticipate that there will be greater number of, or larger number of uh, engagements involving at least the Navy, navies and the Air Forces to join together. Uh, we've seen uh, uh, the P-8I, which is a maritime patrol aircraft being used for uh, the uh, line of actual control with China. We've got those reports and uh, now Twitter handles are always putting out interesting pictures of how P-8I has been deployed. And we also, I also noticed that P-8I, which the American uh, version is also being deployed, is already deployed in the region. So there is a certain kind of uh, a, a range, a, a kind of, let's say, um, um, a structure could be created in which these platforms operate together, which they have had an experience earlier, but that was purely in terms of the Indian Ocean. But now we should be surprised if they stay themselves from say, Singapore and come and operate out of, um, in South China Sea, which they've been doing earlier. All right. So it will be a very interesting times ahead how they push it, uh, how much of pressure can they bring in? So, uh, uh, before we conclude this conversation, I very, you know, this is what probably the general public is uh, keenly watching on, uh, about the tactical moves. So we've been discussing grand strategy of the United States of America in this region. Do you think there will be, there will be any tactical moves by the Americans uh, if this coercive strategy by the Chinese, you know, they're pushing uh, the neighbors to the Wall. So, if that is continuing, do you expect, do you anticipate any 
quick uh, you know, tactical uh, moves in this region uh, that will be led by Americans? See the uh, we we are seeing those signs of sorts. Um, if one looks at the kind of um, uh, it all began with Chinese announcing an you know AIDs AI, air identification zone AIDZ over you know East China Sea first, sounding that they're going to promulgate another AID ADIZ sorry AD, air defense identification zone. Um, coming in for South China Sea, and this must be also connected up with the freedom of navigation operation patrols. These were focused localized towards South China Sea. Last year onwards, 2019 onwards, the U.S. Navy has now been conducting Taiwan Strait passages. First FNOP, then Taiwan Straits. And then these have been now, the frequency has gone up, both in terms uh, of number of transits, as also in terms of the quality of ships, what are being sent down. The Chinese have been also, they've been uh, very watchful of what's going on. It was last year that the Chinese refused uh, the French Navy participation in their international fleet review because they were coming through the Taiwan Straits as part of the so-called the patrol, Taiwan Strait patrol. So the Chinese are very sensitive to anybody transiting through the Taiwan Straits, which they see as signs of challenging their sovereignty. Now we should anticipate that uh, the number of transits through the Taiwan Straits will continue. We are seeing the number of transits in the air going up significantly. And if you want to look at the air and the sea part of it, these two uh, are a good recipe, if I may say, for a, a kind of, let's say, um, uh, attention of sorts. But it remains to be seen how far, what kind of diplomatic channels are on the move, whether the US is very keen to develop a, a kind of more aggressive posture. Would US fall short or the U.S. Uh, thinking fall short of just signaling, how would the Chinese respond? It is as of now, um, the U.S. has been there. They've been carrying out exercises. The Chinese also said we are going to be carrying out exercises. Will these transits, air movement, exercise escalate? So it is not going to happen. But then at sea, things happen very fast. The commanders at sea are always advised to uh, look at the bravado very carefully, but at the same time, there are certain rules of engagement put out by both sides, that is, by the Chinese and by the Americans, who would know when are you going to cross the line. But looking at the way the Chinese have been aggressive, and we've had that incident of uh, uh, the uh, one of the aircraft, uh, surveillance aircraft, EP-3 incident, right? And uh, coming close quarters uh, to the U.S. warships in South China Sea, uh, there are tensions. But I guess both sides have, uh, have, may, must have. I'm very confident. I must have established a certain rules of engagement. How do you come closer, etc. Although they do enjoy uh, what they call as um, MMCA, uh, Maritime Military Communications Agreement. 
way back or nearly about 15, 20 years ago, which was taken as a confidence building measure. But then I think that is that document needs to be dusted and put out again in terms of bringing out as to is there a provision, what kind of rules of engagement. But uh, your question is absolutely right. Uh, I think the thresholds have to be looked at very carefully. Uh, to me, right now, the thresholds are still reasonably good, high, um, but um, it depends on how much pressurizing pressures uh, United States puts on the Chinese to, you know, forcing them to break free out of their set of, so let's say, thresholds. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Sakucha, for that uh, very informative, very insightful uh, conversation on uh, uh, Asia-Pacific, India-Pacific strategy, and also in the context of uh, Mike Pompeo's recent statement on China-India border dispute. It was very, very, very engaging, and I'm very thankful to you. And uh, we look forward to your uh, write-ups, articles on these uh, topics in the coming days. Thank you so much for joining. With this, we wrap up uh, this conversation. Uh, we love to hear from you, the feedback on the show. Please share your feedback on my Twitter handle, Dhanuraj. And also, you can follow our uh, hashtag, Policy Beyond Politics on CPPR India Twitter handle.